welcome to Accountability Talks with AGA. I'm your host, Paula Marshall. Today, we'll be speaking to Linda Miller from Grant Thornton and Rebecca Shea from GAO about the Fraud Reduction and Data Analytics Act. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. So today, we'll be speaking about the Fraud Reduction and Data Analytics Act, and we have guests from Grant Thornton and GAO. So let's start with Linda. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Linda Miller. I'm a director with Grant Thornton, where I've been about three years. And prior to that, I spent 10 years at the Government Accountability Office, GAO. And when I was there, I led the development of the GAO framework for managing fraud risks in federal programs. Well, we're happy to be here. Great. Rebecca? And good morning. This is Rebecca Shea. I'm a director in GAO's Forensic Audit and Investigative Service team. I've been there in that team for about three years, but in GAO for 20 years total. And I remember Linda uh, from the days when she was at GAO. I'm very happy to be here with her today. Great. Well, thank you both for, for joining us. And uh, so we're going to talk about the, the, the Fraud Act. We're, we're going to be calling it FRIDA, right? That's the acronym we like. FRIDA. Okay. <laughs> so why don't we start off with just a little bit about the background and the history of this act and some of the guidance that you guys came up for, for that. Let's just kind of dive into that. Okay, sure. So a little bit of context on FRIDA. Um, back in 2014, GAO issued its revised standards for internal control, the Green Book, as uh, AJA folks might, might know it by. And in that revision, there was a new requirement for agencies to consider fraud risks and assess the risk of fraud in their programs and operations. And when we issued um, the Green Book, the revised Green Book, we, we thought that, you know, as with any new requirements, uh, agencies might not understand fully what that means or know how to go about doing that. So uh, that was the impetus for developing the Fraud Risk Framework. So we developed the fraud, GAS Fraud Risk Framework um, to help managers understand, program managers understand how you uh, implement a holistic fraud risk management program to prevent, detect, and respond to fraud risks. And then about, so that was in 2015 that we issued the Fraud Risk Framework. Mm -hmm. And then a year later in June of 2016, the Fraud Reduction and Data Analytics Act, or FRIDA, as we affectionately call it, was enacted, and the FRIDA um, contains uh, requirements for agencies essentially to um, implement the leading practices that we have outlined in the Fraud Risk Framework and to report on their progress in implementing those uh, uh, administrative and financial controls to manage fraud risks. Right, and that's actually in the financial reports, right, in the, in the agency financial reports. That's correct. One of the requirements of FRIDA was that they report annually in the AFRs on their progress in implementing the act. And, uh, and that was the first reporting year in 2017, um, and now we're at 2019, which is, uh, according to FRIDA, the, the last year of reporting. But one of our recommendations in a recent report, our 1934 looking at the implementation of that act, was uh, for Congress to extend the reporting period because agencies are still getting up to speed on what they need to do for that. So we thought it would be a good idea to extend that reporting period just a little longer so we can have transparency over what's going on. Right. So, you know, I mean, obviously fraud is something that's been around forever. So why do you why do you think in the last few years this really came up to this level, you know, to have an act and to have a, you know, actual guidance, specific guidance put out there? Is there anything specific that kind of prompted it or, you know? You know, I think one of the impetuses for GAO putting the framework out was 
the forensic audits team goes out and, you know, at the request of Congress, looks for fraud in programs, right? And so GAO will be asked to look at, is, is this, does this agency have an issue with fraud? And GAO was finding that when it, they would go out and do these audits, and find the fraud, and they'd talk to the agencies and they'd say, well, that's not really our responsibility. That's the responsibility of the IG. Right. And I kept, that was a constant refrain that we were hearing from agencies. And GAO felt like that was a problem because the IGs come in after the fact when frauds occurred and they do an investigation, but the agency program managers are the ones that are in the best position to figure out where their risks are, their vulnerabilities to fraud. And the fact that they were focused on their mission, which is understandable, but they weren't in any way focused on ensuring program integrity in that mission. Um, they really felt like that was just the responsibility of the IG. So GAO saw that as a significant problem, and that was really why um, GAO took it upon itself under the Comptroller General's authority to develop the Fraud Risk Management Framework. Yeah. And just to piggyback on that a little bit, um, one of the other things that we saw and heard was that um, program managers were always playing catch up. They were always doing the pay and chase. You know, the, the mm -hmm. fraud had already happened, the money had gone out the door, and they were trying to recover it. And we we all know that yeah. the preventive like, model, mm -hmm. right, the preventive model is much more effective. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to also be able to help managers get ahead of the problem, and we focused on prevention in the fraud risk framework. Okay. So, you know, now we have the framework, and let's say I'm at an agency, you know, what offices, you know, need to get involved in this, what different parts of the organization, or just walk us through how an agency would just get going on something like this. Yeah, that's, um, that's been a challenge, I think, for agencies, in, it, to some extent, because um, OMB put the GAO fraud framework in A123, when they refreshed A123 and made the, the focus on enterprise risk management. And obviously that A123 document is really aimed at the CFO community. Mm -hmm. um, and so there was sort of this assumption that that would be the CFO's responsibility. GAO is not prescriptive about who ought to be in charge of their fraud risk management program. And in fact, they say all the framework says is that you have to identify a designated entity. Mm -hmm. And that designated entity could be your chief administrative officer if, for instance, most of your fraud is internal, mm -hmm. you know, or you could have a special dedicated unit like the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Um, so there isn't a specific office that anyone, like GAO doesn't have a position, it needs to be here, it needs to be there. Yeah. Um, and I think that agencies um, are wondering exactly where to put it, and we've seen it at, we've seen most agencies putting it in the CFO shop, some putting it into their chief risk officer's shop, um, you know, but there's, um, I think that right now there's a lot of confusion around who ought to be responsible for improper payments, who ought to be responsible for fraud, who ought to be responsible for mm -hmm. ERM, mm -hmm. you know, and these are all these sort of uh, requirements floating around that agencies are struggling with who and how to, um, manage those, which is one of the reasons why Treasury put out this anti-fraud playbook um, in September of 2018, and one of the goals was to identify sort of the, the program integrity landscape and, and, and have agencies think about the interrelationship between internal controls, enterprise risk management, fraud risk management, and improper payments, all kind of as one unit of, you know, quote-unquote program integrity. Right. And it's one of the other things that we're also trying to, to socialize uh, as we go out and we do these reviews and we talk to people about this is, you know, there's the, the entity that's responsible for doing the reporting and, you know, um, making sure that they've got 
all of the institutional aspects for managing fraud rest in, space, in, in place, but there's responsibility at every level. Um, there's the responsibility of all employees to um, have a, an orientation that's ethical and uh, conduct that is focused on, on anti-fraud. There's a responsibility of uh, whistleblowers, I mean, not necessarily responsibility, but you know, you can have whistleblowers who can also um, provide input and su support a counter-fraud effort. You've got the IG community, they do have a role in auditing um, what the agencies are doing, the program managers, uh, you know, looking for fraud, um, using the fraud risk framework, seeing what the agencies are doing in uh, the realm of fraud risk management. And then you've got GAO also, you know, we're doing the same kinds of things using the fraud risk framework uh, to, get, to conduct audits. But I'd say, you know, there are multiple levels of responsibility and, and that cuts across, uh, you know, both the audit and the agency side. Okay. So let's say, you know, an agency society, the entity that kind of wants to be the central, you know, function here running this thing. I mean, what are some of the next steps you need to take? I mean, you kind of put together a council, so to sort of speak, or, or do you start looking at, you know, go out and look to assess yourself, how, you know, where are we now? What do we think our risks are now? Or, I mean, what's just kind of, again, kind of walk us through, you know, A to Z, what, what's, what's the next step? I'll give that one to Rebecca. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> give well, um, so I, maybe I should back up a little bit. Like the first step is um, perhaps taking a look at the fraud risk framework and the leading practices mm -hmm. that we have outlined right. in there. Um, so uh, w one of the things that Linda has already mentioned is the first component, commit to combating fraud. Mm -hmm. And uh, in doing that, you designate an entity for managing fraud risks, and then you also take steps to create a culture um, that supports uh, counter fraud or anti-fraud sentiment. And you can do that through training, you can do that through tone at the top. Um, so we have these leading practices that are outlined in there that can help uh, whoever that designated entity take those steps that they need. Uh, one of the other things that they, the leading practices suggest doing is talking with your OIG, finding out from them, you know, what are some of the frauds that we've experienced? Um, how can we uh, take steps to use that information and training so that people can become aware of the types of risks that we face. Um, so collecting information and then um, developing a culture of uh, counter-fraud. Um, so that's the component one. Then, you know, the second component is to assess your fraud risks. And um, that's where uh, Grant Thornton has some tools. That's where Treasury has some tools uh, that can help you understand that process. Mm -hmm. um, so you will assess your fraud risks. Um, you will uh, determine the likelihood and impact of those risks. You'll go through that process. Um, you'll assess what controls you have in place and whether or not those controls might need to be uh, you know, modified, uh, depending on what you find from that assessment. So, and I'm just right now stepping yeah. through the yeah. fraud risk framework um, with all these different leading practices. The third uh, component of the framework is to design and implement. So that's where you kind of bring all that assessment together um, and you develop a fraud risk profile. You think about what your fraud risk tolerance is. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe there are some fraud risks that exist, but it doesn't have a significant impact on the program or your mission or the dollar values are low. You know, however it is that the, um, 
you know, you have decided to assess that tolerance. Uh, you put that together in a profile, you consider what your controls are and whether you need to add uh, new ones. You think about whether you've got, uh, after you've considered all those controls, some residual risk that might need to be addressed, and then you implement that plan. And then, you know, you're not done, you're not done yet, because then you go to the fourth component and that's evaluate and adapt. And that's where you're going to be um, thinking about um, long-term, uh, continually assessing that risk, uh, looking at the effectiveness of the controls, using your data to understand whether or not um, you are effectively preventing the fraud risk. And then again, like continuing evaluating and adapting your uh, risk assessment and your process in, as part of a, an ongoing approach to fraud risk management. So I know that's, that's what we outline in the fraud risk framework and all those leading practices help guide you. It, it is still a little bit uh, ephemeral for some agencies, and that's where some of the tools that uh, Grant Thornton and Treasury uh, have developed to help agencies as well. Right. No, and I, I like I love that framework because it's very you know it's very well laid out, um, and it does kind of uh, it's, it's similar to some internal control programs that are out there or some ERM programs that are out there. I mean, I like that it's kind of you know you can see you can synchronize or use some of those same people or techniques or approaches to get the information you want, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and speaking of which, I mean, how do you guys see this dovetailing at all with some ERM programs, mm -hmm. for example? Yeah, I think um, there's there's confusion there too. So I think some agencies think that they can tack fraud onto ERM as mm. a one of the pillars right. and just sort of throw that in there. And I've heard that actually quite a bit, mm -hmm. um, which I think is is unfortunate <laughs> from my perspective. And I I think Rebecca probably agrees because fraud is not a um, one piece it, it, it's woven throughout all of those ERM pillars so if you think about you know the risks that you look at in an ERM program operational financial reputational each of those different pillars of risk in the ERM space are affected by fraud sure. and so w the way that we like to think about it is not that they should be two separate efforts like you should mm -hmm. do ERM mm -hmm. and then you should stop and turn around and then start building something new for fraud we think you ought to use the, the, the tools that you've built for an ERM program if you've built those. Mm -hmm. If you have a risk assessment process, if you have a methodology for assessing likelihood and impact through your ERM program, leverage that for your fraud risk management program and for your fraud risk assessment, but do it separately. So run through that whole program that you might have already built out for ERM and do it for your fraud risks. Um, and you know, one of the best practices in the, in the GAO fraud framework and one that I um, have firsthand experience that I feel is really, really important is the concept of these sort of brainstorming workshops as a way to manage, to do a fraud risk assessment. Um, a lot of organizations want to take a very quantitative approach to risk assessment in general. You know, um, develop a risk register, send it out, get people to rank things on a scale of one to five, get them back, put them on a heat map, and you know, have this sort of quantitative assessment. And um, Really, risk assessments an art, not a science, and and there are ways you can quantify quali qualitative factors, okay. and we've we've certainly come up with some ways to do that at Grant Thornton, coming up with sort of risk factors. So, for example, um, internal pressures would be an example, where maybe um, if you're a program that 
that has a lot of performance incentives to, to move a lot of applications quickly through a process, or you're, you get a bonus for the number of applications you adjudicate in a given period of time. Mm -hmm. Those sorts of pressures or incentives, right. they're going to, um, they're, they're disincentiv dis disincentivizing the, the, the slowing down, stopping, and looking at something when there looks like there might be a fraud indicator mm -hmm. there, right? And so where we see large backlogs, pressure to get rid of backlogs, pressure to move applications through quickly, we consider that an inherent fraud risk. Right. And so a factor that we might think about an agency considering would be internal pressure. And then asking a series of questions around your specific programs, like which are our programs that have that, that, that kind of internal pressure in place? And then we'd consider those higher risk programs. So mm -hmm. that's a way that you can think about, you know, and then, and then of course you can apply numbers to that. So you can say program X, has a lot of that kind of internal pressure. So on a scale of one to five, that's a five in terms of you know inherent risk, the likelihood that fraud could occur in that particular process. Now, we don't know for sure. We'd have to go in and look at schemes and really dig into the controls to understand whether or not you know that is a problem. But that's an inherent risk that an agency ought to think about when deciding kind of their, quote, fraud exposure. So at Grant Thornton, we, we think agencies ought to start by figuring out which are their highest fraud exposure programs, mm -hmm. and then going in and doing fraud risk assessments in those programs. And so what I just described, that factor approach, is a way to help them think about the higher fraud exposure programs. And then going in, once they've said, okay, program A is our highest risk program by fraud exposure, based on our factor analysis, this analysis we've done, now we're gonna go in and we're gonna sit with process owners and discuss specific scenarios and the right. likelihood and impact of those scenarios occurring given the existing controls and identify where their gaps or weaknesses. And so that process sort of we think um, is the sort of the gold standard way to do it. Mm -hmm. not, agents, not all agencies will invest that kind of time and resources, but um, when they do, I think they find real value in that. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, so, right, so you find these areas with the highest potentials for exposure to fraud, and, mm -hmm. and part of that would be to, you know, how much, how, what kind of dollars are we talking about, or what yeah, kind of exactly. reputational risk are we talking mm -hmm. about, right, all those things. And then, like you said, assess what controls are in place, are they sufficient, should we bolster that, should we put in some kind of uh, data analytic tool, should we do some kind of monitoring mm -hmm. other than, or, or additional segregation of duties, things like that, right. but all those are things right. you can do to address it. Exactly, mm -hmm. that would be the design and implement yeah. part that, yeah. that, that Rebecca mentioned. Right. Okay. And then, um, so, and I guess a couple things. So I'm thinking about what I'm calling fraud response, but I mean, so, so you have your team that's actually assessing you know, the situation, um, and the one question is how do you respond to these areas with a high fraud exposure? But also the question is if you do find fraud, what is the response you're supposed to take? So maybe can you walk us through those two different scenarios? You know, how would an agency respond uh, if you actually do find fraud, I mean, the, the, the usual scenario is you go to the OIG, isn't that right? Yeah. Okay, so that's pretty straightforward. Yeah, I mean, if you find <laughs> fraud, like something that looks like fraud, yeah. an agency would then refer that to the IG, yeah. right? Okay. And so um, I think, though, where, where we're hoping agencies get to is uncovering the, the, the large and unknown varieties of fraud that they're likely experiencing right now. Mm -hmm. They just don't know about it because they haven't done a fraud risk assessment. Yeah, right, and I would just say one of the other things that we've talked a lot about is this distinction between fraud and fraud risk. Mm -hmm. And um, when we talk with agencies when the framework first came out, uh, there was confusion about what's the definition of fraud. 
well, we don't know whether something is fraud until it's adjudicated to be fraud. Mm -hmm. And it's a very valid point, but uh, we would then say our framework is about managing the risk of fraud. Uh, you can have a fraud risk without ever having experienced actual fraud. Sure. And like the, the home um, example is a really good one. So if I leave my house unlocked with the valuables visible inside, I'm at risk for robbery. Even if I never experienced uh, robbery, right. it's that risk that exists. And so trying to take the steps to manage that risk, that's where we keep trying to bring agencies focus back to. Uh, and again, you know, that helps to prevent that pain chase. So like they find fraud, yes, they refer to the OIG, but really we want to help them get ahead of that. Think about where your risks are and take steps to, to address that proactively. Right, so yeah, if you're, if you're walking out the house without the lock on, then you know, you gotta put some controls in place, you know, start locking it or get a, get a security right. system. But if, you know, you come home and things are missing, call the police, you know, right. that's right. two different situations there. Um, so, so this is the uh, you know fraud reduction and data analytics act. So, talk to us a little bit about what what is that data analytics piece? Mm -hmm. What does that meant to address? Yeah, and that's a really important piece. I mean, the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, the ACFE, um, ha puts out a report to nations every two years. It's a it's a pretty exhaustive survey that they do across global organizations, and they found that those organizations that put in place some sort of proactive data analytics experience a 54% reduction in the total duration and loss of their fraud schemes. And so we see that as like, you know, that's significant, right? That's a really, really significant um, benefit. And yet agencies um, are still struggling with using the data they have mm -hmm. to identify potential fraud. And it, 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 an easy example is some of the, the, the areas where there's plentiful data that you know is generally reliable. So for instance, travel and purchase cards, mm -hmm. payroll data, right. vendor payments, right? Mm -hmm. These are areas where agencies have a lot of data and that data is pretty reliable for the most part. Right. And yet few agencies are doing the basic analytics test to identify, say for example, ghost employee fraud schemes or you know, if a vendor happens to be also an employee, for example. And so GAO will come in you know, and do a study and they will look, uh, run some geolocation data and say, you've been paying this company for the last five years and it's in a field. We, we did a geolocation and that's not a company. Oh, right. Um, mm -hmm. And then of course it's really embarrassing. There's a picture of an empty field on the front page of the GAO report and the agency looks really bad. Right. And you know, they can stop that themselves. They have the, ta the capability mm -hmm. to run a geolocation mm -hmm. analytics test on all their vendors and identify they could run you know vendor addresses against their employee addresses and see if there's any matches you know the kinds of things but what the interesting thing is that so many of them when i talk about this they're like well i mean that wouldn't happen like <laughs> right. think one of our employees would pretend to be a vendor i'm like yeah yeah i can show you like five id reports where that's happened right. and so part of it is just this fraud awareness mm -hmm. it gets back to the first element honestly now, analytics are really important mm -hmm. But agencies have to understand that they need those analytics, and in order for them to understand that, they have to believe that yeah. this could be happening. You know, right. and so I often tell people that my job is trying to convince people to believe in ghosts, because literally everywhere I go and talk about fraud, they're like, "We don't have fraud problem," mm. and so I'm like, "Okay, well, well, let's start with yes, you do, and then we can move to what do you want to do about it." But you know, getting them to believe that they actually have a problem, we're still we're still kind of there. Huh. We're a couple of years in here. 
Right. Uh, and what Linda describes, I mean, that is definitely important in the first step, but that's still even just within um, agency operations. I mean, if you think about the problems that agencies face with grant fraud and contract fraud, yeah. um, there are similarities that are going to exist across programs across agencies. And one of the things that OMB is tasked with doing in support of agencies' implementation of FRIDA is uh, uh, leading a working group, a fraud working group, that brings together the 72 agencies that are subject to FRIDA to talk about some of these issues that Linda has mentioned, to develop a library of data analytics, to develop a, you know, a library and to share best practices and things that they have done to use data and data analytics um, and hopefully at some point to also share some of that data because you know that fraudsters are not just exploiting a single program or, or things at a single agency. If they're going to be exploiting uh, you know, grant fraud in one place, they may well be exploiting grant fraud in another place. So that to the extent that we can you know, have agencies start sharing these findings that they're having, sharing these tools, sharing these analytics and sharing the data, we can start having, I think, a, a much greater progress on managing fraud risk across the government. Right, yeah, and I, I think we did a podcast with uh, one of the IGs from uh, Florida, and they are real deep into data analytics. Before they even go out on an investigation, they really drill down a lot of, uh, honestly, publicly available information, mm -hmm. and they say, hey, this is a red flag, this is jumping out at me. Right. And, you know, because one thing I, I would think agencies might be concerned is the cost of buying a fancy tool or a bunch of tools or software applications. I think, you know, Palm Beach is basically using Excel. That's all they really needed to find huge red flags and they would go out and investigate these folks and yeah, they're they're committing fraud. I never, you know, it was a great tool just just something you know, something simple like that. Right. So, I mean, I think that's I like the council or the uh, working group kind of concept cuz uh, it'd be great to literally just let folks know here are some the types of tests you should be running. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, the and, and treasuries whatever. Yeah. I think treasuries really taking the lead on trying to help agencies pull these tools together. They're building an OMB Max site that agencies mm -hmm. can access. And, you know, uh, there's several things that I'm going to push the anti fraud playbook gangs. I think it's just a mm -hmm. great resource. It's free. It's on the CFO mm -hmm. Council website, easily downloadable. Um, Treasury developed that. And uh, there's templates, there's resources, there's links that you can click to for like training from ACFE. There's, you know, there's ways to do fraud risk assessment. There's best practices and checklists. It's really, really useful guide. There's even how to start with analytics and how do where do you you know how do you get started and and then and then Treasury's also been holding a series of roundtables um, with interested groups to kind of dig into some of those pieces of the playbook, which really are pieces of the GAO fraud framework and getting these interested sort of communities of practice together. And so they've started this real, I would say, agency-wide movement. Uh, in the last year, year and a half, the fraud working group has gotten really big. These ground tables that Treasury has been hosting have had great participation. There's a, a ton of interest. And I think there's just been an exponential increase in fraud awareness and awareness in uh, the need to, to, to be proactive in managing the fraud mm -hmm. risks. And I, and I give Treasury a ton of credit on sort of being the agency that's mm -hmm. taking the lead to right. do that for across government and um, so agencies can join that it's free to join um, you know to get onto Treasury's sort of web or list serve and join some of these efforts and access that OMB Max site that does things like puts red flags for common fraud that mm -hmm. agencies that are grant making agencies may all be experiencing or you know benefit agencies or what have you so um, there are a lot there are becoming a lot more tools where 
uh, Treasury is helping to bridge that gap. If one agency has something, why should that other mm -hmm. agency have to build the same right. thing? They should share it, you know? Right. Right. Yeah, and I mean, I'm just thinking here, but I mean, these tools, obviously, you know, fraud is one area you definitely, you know, help you find that, but, and you just, just good operations, you know, why are we spending so much money in this area? I didn't realize we were doing this, or, you know, oh, this is an improper payment. It's not fraud, but it's an overpayment, an underpayment, mm -hmm. and these things can help you flag those, you know, much more real time, and, you know, I can see multiple, you know, va valley benefits yep. from these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 absolutely, right. So we've been talking a lot about financial fraud. Um, how about non-financial fraud? Right, um, so I think a lot of the focus uh, has been on improper payments. And I think to some extent that makes program managers think more along the lines of the potential for financial fraud. But uh, Frida is also focused on non-financial fraud. And uh, I think it's important to make sure when you're you know, thinking about your fraud risks and, and thinking about the controls you need to address those, you're also thinking about those non-financial fraud risks. For example, uh, passport and immigration fraud. Um, we have in GAO done some reports looking at those uh, weaknesses. And in the 9-11 Commission report, one of the uh, findings that they had was that uh, Al-Qaeda exploited the immigration and passport system in order to be able to get legitimately issued passports um, and visas to get to enter the U.S. So, I mean, that that just gives you one very impactful example of how non-financial fraud risks are important to other risks that agencies may be experiencing. You know, there are also fraud risks um, related to access, um, access to federally regulated materials. For example, like uh, we did, a GAO did a report looking at access to radiological materials, and we were able to access uh, radiological materials uh, through one of our investigations. As you know, that can be used to make a dirty bomb. That's a, a, a potential fraud risk. There are uh, employee, uh, employment, federal employment fraud risks. Um, it, there's unethical conduct. Um, there's We did some work in the past looking at diploma mills and how federal employees used fake diplomas in order to get hired into uh, federal uh, uh, jobs. So there are a wide variety of non-financial fraud risks that agencies also need to be thinking about as they're doing their risk assessments. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think especially in the Homeland Security and Justice context, mm -hmm. um, you know, you see a lot of risks around things like TSA employee misconduct, mm -hmm. well-documented, um, but they don't always think about that as a fraud risk. They don't always think, but if a, if a, if a, if a TSA employee is using their position um, as a way to get somebody through a, a checkpoint mm -hmm. um, you know into a secure area of an airport where they can do a variety of things that would be a national security or, or just general security um, you know event that's a fraud risk they're using their position they're, they're exploiting their position mm -hmm. to to get something you know through a checkpoint and that's so that's an example of where I think there's not an understanding that that's a fraud risk mm -hmm. and, and that's a problem. They're not considering those risks when they're doing fraud risk assessments. They're only really thinking about these financial risks. Right. Right. And, and of course, that's where you can apply data analytics as well because Absolutely. they'll have those, you know, their software applications, whatever they use for, for these programs, you mm -hmm. know, put some, uh, put some, build some tools for that as well to find these flags. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yep. So, okay. Well, good. I mean, uh, I, I think that's, that's our time for today, but I really appreciate you all coming in and, uh, you know, I encourage folks to go out. We're going to put on the website a link to the, you know, to the guidance that you all mentioned today. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. no, this was great. I appreciate you all coming out and speaking. Very happy to be here. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having us. That's our show. Thanks for joining us. 
visit us at agacgfm.org. Check out all the other podcasts or download iTunes, Google Play. And until the next time, this is your host, Paul Marshall, signing off for Accountability Talks with AGA.